I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I would love to do that, whether that's you're here in person or on live stream. So reach out to us and let us know. We are in a series called Sent, the Acts of Christians that Change the World. It's a study in the book of Acts, and um, we're kind of hitting key sections of it and not going all the way through every verse or even necessarily to the end of the book, but hitting some key themes in it. Um, Today we will be looking at Acts chapter 16 in just a minute, so if you have a Bible and you want to open there, you can do so, or if you want to pull out your digital scroll and use that to find it, you could do that as well. Um, To set the context of where we are, Acts chapter 15 was a huge council of all the apostles and the elders from the early church after Jesus has, has, has ascended into heaven. And they were there because there was key issues that were causing disruption and division in the church. Issues related to how one actually becomes a Christian and what it means to be saved. They reconcile those and say, nope, this is where we are and this is where we're going forward. And so from there, Paul and Barnabas, who have been out on missionary journeys, agree they're going out again, but they disagree. They come into sharp dispute with one another and they can't agree who they're going to take with them. So Barnabas takes Mark and he goes to Cyprus, where they had been before, Paul takes Silas with him along with Timothy, one of the converts from his previous journey, and they set out uh, onto the European continent to the prominent Greek city under Roman rule called Philippi. There's a letter written to the Philippians in the Bible, and that letter's full of joy in what's going on, and Paul's rejoicing even as he was in prison there. So how does a man who goes through, some people go through this place and start a church, and he writes to them about having great joy. How did that church even get started? Well, that's what these verses tell us about. So follow along with me if you would. Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 34. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and sent and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he all he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Father in heaven, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word. Spirit, make it effective in our hearts and our lives. You tell us in the Bible that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. May it be so here today. Amen. I want you to listen to this. A lot of people consider me as nothing and say I don't know what I'm talking about. But there's one thing that he said that really touched my heart and stayed on my mind. When that old man looked up and said... I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody About somebody Who can save anybody Have you heard that before? I don't know, maybe you have. I had not heard that before. Uh, I wasn't familiar with the Williams Brothers, even though they've been inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. Uh, it's one of my obvious blind spots of my many blind spots. Not a huge music person to start with, and they're a little bit before my time. I was probably like in diapers still. Um, but I have heard that phrase from that song. And I think it's fascinating and it's amazing. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. But really, can Jesus save anybody? I mean, really anybody. Like, the worst of the worst. Let's say Putin gets soundly defeated and he repents. Can he be saved? Even Putin? Can God save anybody? Really anybody? What about good people? What if they're good people and successful people and contribute to society and they've been positive influences their whole life and have really lived genuinely good lives? Do they even need Jesus to save them? And does everybody have the same experience in coming to Jesus? Or are they all different? What's fascinating to me in this chapter, what we just read, is that we see this, these three people who represent everybody and show us that Jesus can save anybody. So let's look at these samples of these three people here who are the everybody's. I mean, it's samples of everybody. You have male and female. You have child and you have adult. You have differences along ethnic, economic, and spiritual 
lines. I mean, for instance, Lydia, the woman, right, who believes in Paul, uh, she's Asian. She's from Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Thyatira, but she's living in what used to be Greece, now under Roman rule, in the city of Philippi, which is part of Europe. Okay, so she's got a different background ethnically. The slave girl's probably native Greek. She's probably in her hometown. She may have been brought there from somewhere else, but still probably somewhere in Greece, um, and then is brought there to be a slave in Philippi. Uh, The jailer is Roman, because Philippi is a Roman colony, and it's where um, the good jobs guarding jails were given to Roman soldiers. And so having served well, he's put in charge of a prominent place, a prominent uh, uh, fortress there and colony uh, of the Roman Empire. So they're all different backgrounds ethnically, but they're also very different economically. Lydia is wealthy. She is wealthy. I mean, she has a house in Philippi, but it's from, from Thyatira, and that's where the headquarters are for manufacturing this purple cloth that is mentioned. She has become a fashion designer and a trader of this cloth internationally. I mean, she is wildly successful. The slave girl is not wealthy. She is poor. We don't know how she became a slave. It's possible that her parents either couldn't support her or couldn't handle her, maybe because of a spirit or something like that, and said, we don't know what to do with you, and they sold her. In any case, she's become a slave. She's being exploited. She's like a psychic fortune teller, but who has to pay her handler and makes lots of money doing it, but she doesn't get any of it. She probably gets food and some basic care. And then there's the jailer. Jailers, you know, upper middle class, probably blue collar, former military man, bound by duty and honor. He's the guy helping out the neighbor in need, saying, let's get it done. I'll help you out. Right? Different. Spiritually, they're different too. They come from very different worlds. Lydia is, I think, unfulfilled. She's unfulfilled because she's a woman in a patriarchal patriarchal society who has achieved phenomenal success, which should be fulfilling to her, but we're told in verse 14, you could put that on the screen if you like, we're told in verse 14 that she is a worshiper of God. Why? That's not native. It's not native to be a worshiper of God if you're from Asia Minor or from Greece. That would require Jewish influence, and there's not even a synagogue in Philippi. The place that she goes is to the public park where they gather for prayer by the river. And she's seeking something. Why is she seeking something? Because all of her success has still left her feeling like something is incomplete. Something is unfulfilled. And then there's a slave girl, right? She is tormented. Verse 16 tells us this. And verse 16 actually says where it says she had a spirit in her by which she predicted the future. The actual Greek there says she had the spirit of a python. And it makes no sense to Western readers, English readers, and so they just don't put that in there. They're like, people are going to be like, what does that mean? I don't understand that. So they just put a spirit in there knowing that you would think she's got this influence by other spirits. But it's important to understand what that does mean. In central Greece, in Delphi, there's a temple to the god Apollo. You can see the ruins of it today. And that is where the oracle of Delphi lived. The oracle was the one who delivered and predicted the future by the power of the god Apollo. And so that temple where, in Delphi, where the oracle lived, was guarded by a python. So they would have images of it and everything around there. And everybody in that area knew, in Greece, that the spirit of a python meant... You were like an oracle of the god Apollo. That's how they would have thought of that. 
And so what is happening is as she is speaking and she gets in maybe a deep voice or a high voice, something that's very different from whatever she might normally be doing, people would automatically associate her with the oracle and be saying, that's Apollo speaking, listen to this girl. And because of that, she got paid a lot of money. Well, her owner got paid a lot of money. And then there's the jailer. I imagine, I don't know, the text doesn't say this, but I imagine he doesn't care too much for spiritual things. He just does his duty and maybe goes above and beyond his duty. He's told to guard them and make sure that he guards them well. So he does that by not only putting them in the inner cell, but notice in verse 24, which we have a slide for as well, what he does to their feet. They're in the inner cell, so they're locked in. But then he also puts their feet in stocks. And when you're, when you're sitting and your feet are in stocks, it's really hard to move, to roll over, to sleep at all. So you're not doing much sleeping. And they're not going anywhere. I don't know why he did that. Maybe it's just because he's doing his duty. Maybe it's because, like, hey, you guys caused an uproar in my city, and that's not happening on my watch. You're going to be in the stocks. I don't know. It doesn't say. It just says they're in the stocks. But he takes his duty seriously, and he guards them, and they're not getting out. And so what we see here is this sample of everybody, different places, men, women, child, adult, different ethnic, economic, and spiritual backgrounds. What we also see is that each of them has an encounter with Jesus. In other words, everybody needs a somebody. Everybody needs a somebody that can save anybody. And we all need a somebody named Jesus. But here's the deal. We already have a somebody. We already have a master. We all have a master that we serve. We're all enslaved to something. You say, no, the slave girl, she's enslaved. The other people, they're not slaves. True, in, the, in like the, the legal sense, in the economic sense, but we're all servants to something, to somebody or something. Something's our master. For instance, Lydia, what's, she, what's her master? I think looking at the text, the little bit of information we're given, that we could say her master, the thing that drove her, would be her success. And she had to succeed. As the woman of the house, leading the house, with apparently no mention of a husband, she's like on her own, but she's successful, wildly successful, as an international fashion person and businesswoman in a male-dominated world. She's confident and she's smart. And yet God comes to her through her mind, maybe through her reason, Because we're told that Paul goes down to that prayer group that meets by the river and he speaks to them and he talks to them. And we know when Paul talks, he goes and he talks and he usually opens the scriptures and starts talking about what the Bible says. So in a way we could say he goes and he does a Bible study with them. And she's been seeking, we're told she's a worshiper of God and she's been going to this place of prayer. And like she hears it explained and it finally clicks, it makes sense. She's like, oh, I get it. It makes sense. And then we're told that, of course, that God opened her heart to respond and her whole household was baptized. So God comes to her through the scriptures, through Paul giving them to her. It makes sense as what she's been searching for. Something clicks. But then there's the slave girl whose master is the demonic influence. Right? She's mastered by demonic influence. And yeah, she needs Jesus. She needs the somebody that can save anybody. And how does God come to her? Well, she has some knowledge, right? Because she's walking around following Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas and saying, hey, these guys are telling you about the person that can save you. She's got some basic knowledge, but maybe not a lot. But Paul doesn't sit down to do a Bible study with her. He doesn't open up the Bible and say, don't you know this? That's not what the text tells us. Instead, 
he tells us that God comes to this slave girl through her experience. Paul confronts her bad master, the one she's enslaved to and serving, with the good master, Jesus. Let me tell you about a more beautiful one, Jesus. And he casts out the demons and frees her so that her experience now is knowing what it's like to have the weight of oppression and darkness lifted. The demons had come there. They had taken some territory in possessing that girl. But God sent his missionaries and took it back. That's what's happening. And she's experienced that freedom, that love, that change. No longer master to the demons. The jailer, what is his master? I think his master is probably duty, if I had to try to say what it was. I don't think he cares a lot about scholarship, though I don't know that it doesn't say that. He probably doesn't care a lot about emotional experiences. He's a man of action. He's a man of service, of honor, of duty. It's like, show me what you do and I'll tell you who you are. And what God does to get to him is he shows him changed lives. Right? Again, it's not a Bible study. It's not a crazy, it is a crazy experience, but it's an experience that leads to why do these people do what they do? Because what happens? He imprisons them, puts them in jail, puts their feet in stocks, and what does he hear? He hears them in the middle of the night singing and praying. He sees people's lives of service and honor, singing and praying to their God in the midst of their pain. I imagine as a soldier, he's heard people cry out to the gods before for help, for rescue, Maybe to curse him, I don't know. But he's probably heard that. But does he notice a difference with Paul and Silas and what they're doing? He notices them for sure after the earthquake, doesn't he? Because this earthquake comes, rattles the jail, breaks open the doors, and the chains fall from the walls. Apparently, everybody could have got out because the jailer knows that they're all to be free, and he knows that if he is to allow them to escape after his orders, he will be executed. Rather than face that public shame, he is taking what he thinks an honorable way out to end his own life because he's failed his duty. And then he hears the voices. Stop! Don't do that. Don't kill yourself. Wait, we're still here. Just pause for a second. Why are they still there? If, if you're in a, a foreign place and you're jailed and you're hoping to get out and there's, you've prayed and sung and God sends an earthquake and opens the doors, you're like, that's God's answer. I'm out of here. See ya. I, that's what I would do. Why are they still there? They could run, yeah. It would make them fugitives, so that would not be so good. I think they're there because they are willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And they're willing to suffer to preserve the guard's life. That's a lot for them to do, to say, we will be men of honor and stay here to preserve your life. They showed him the gospel. Then he 
is so overcome by that that he invites them to his house. And we see in verses 33 and 34, we could put those on the screen, that, um, that at, at, the hour, at that hour of the night, and it was like in the middle of the night, he invites them over to the house and he washes their wounds. They've been beaten, stripped and beaten severely. He's now washing their wounds. He and his household are baptized and he brings them into the house and sets a meal before them to feed them and he's filled with joy. Because he's come to believe in God and his whole household. Salvation has come to his household through people who showed him Jesus. You might be one who has not yet believed in and trusted in Jesus for salvation. To put it plainly, you have not said, okay, I will put my life in Jesus' hands. What I want you to understand today is that Jesus can save you. In fact, he can. He can save whomever he pleases to save. I've seen people in this church who have put their life in Jesus' hands. Some have come through Bible study and lots of questions and searching and seeking. Others have come more through an experience of what God has done that was overwhelming and overcoming in a way they maybe couldn't even explain it. You've probably heard Jeremy talk about that before from behind the piano. Others who have battled addictions and had breakthroughs and been, uh, experienced freedom from those still others who have watched other people's lives and seen them the way they live and follow Jesus and go, I don't know, but I need something of what you've got. And they too, their lives are changed. One of the things that you and I need to admit is that we all serve masters. Those masters can be all kinds of things. In fact, next week we're going to start a series kind of on that, on idols. The master might be money, it might be success, it might be fame, it might be pleasure, might be family. It could be all kinds of things. We all have a master. The question is, is your master good enough? Is your master the somebody that can save anybody? Any master other than Jesus will fail you at some point. It can only deliver so much. Money can do a a whole lot of things for you. But in the end, it can only do that much. And then you still may feel unfulfilled or unsatisfied. Eventually, whatever you're chasing, whatever your master is, will stop satisfying you. And, especially when it's an object, it won't forgive you or love you. It can't. It's an object. Jesus is the only master who forgives you if you fail him and then satisfies you with his love when everything else has been stripped away. The only one who picks you up and says, come on, let's keep going. He's the good and true master. For those of you who do believe but think perhaps, I don't know, I think maybe I've lost my way. I've got doubts. I've screwed up. I've failed. Jesus is the somebody that can save anybody and has saved you, and you need to remember that. Perhaps you have let another master replace Jesus. Paul and Silas are singing in the darkness of the jail in footstocks and in a cell. I wish we could all do that. And if we can't, it's not necessarily true, but maybe it means 
If we can't sing in the darkness, maybe it means we have another master other than the Most High God. We need the somebody that can save anybody, and we need the somebody's people. We need the church, the community, because notice what's happened now. He's gone, and all these people, these everybodies, have become um, people who are saved by Jesus to somebody. And what has happened then? He's leaving behind a church. They're all different, but now they have something in common. They're all followers of Jesus, founding members of the new church, people who would not normally associate with one another at all, ever. Like from totally different spectrums and parts of life. There's no Christian personality type. Oh, you've got to be this way or that way. No, it's just people. It's, it's not that you've got to be rich or poor, ambitious or laid back, men or women, boys or girls, slave or free, thinkers, feelers, doers, people are whom Jesus loves and comes to save. And what binds us together is Jesus Christ. We are united by his life, death, and resurrection. That's what brings us together. You and I as Christians have amazing freedom in Jesus. You and I as Americans have amazing freedom too, don't we? We should be thankful for that. Man, we're reminded of every day as we see the onslaught against Ukraine. Thankful for the freedom that we have. How do we get that freedom? It wasn't free. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't easy. That freedom was won and secured by the life, by the blood, by the death of those who went before and fought the battles necessary to give you and I that freedom. And what I'm telling you is that you have freedom in Christ because it is Jesus who fought the war the battle, and shed his blood and his life and his death and rose again so that you have that freedom. And it's the greatest kind you can ever have. And if you have that kind of freedom by the one who has sacrificed so much for you, then the last thing I want you to get today is this, that it ought to make you willing to be a nobody for the sake of anybody. In verses 37 to 39, which we did not read, but I think we can put them on the screen now, um, they say, do we have that slide or not? Maybe we don't. I may have not put that in there, but I'll read them to you anyways. Verses 37 to 39 say, um, but Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. What's going on here? Paul and Silas are willing to be nobodies for the sake of anybody. Why did they not inform the magistrates earlier that they were Roman citizens? If if the crowd is going crazy and the magistrate says, strip them and beat them, Right there, right then and there, I'm playing the card. I'm a citizen. I have a right to trial. They don't do that. Why not? I got the get out of jail free card. I'd like to use it. Why not? Paul and Silas were in the awkward place 
of needing to negotiate their way out of a riot that they had in part caused. And if they played the citizen card, the get-out-of-jail-free card, too soon, they may have appeased the magistrates, but the business owners, especially the owner of the slave girl, would still be very unhappy with them. Now, by going to jail overnight, by suffering a beating, perhaps those, that guy feels like some justice has been done, perhaps not. But by declaring to them that he is a Roman citizen after he has been illegally detained, imprisoned, and beaten... And they say, you can go now, just walk out quietly. And he says, I don't think so. You're going to come escort us out. Why? Because the magistrates have to publicly, in front of the people, walk them out and say, oh yeah, they're okay, nothing they did wrong. Now, is that simply for Paul's vindication? See, okay, good, I feel better about myself. Or is that so? Lydia, a slave girl, and a jailer can live without fear of opposition and a new church can flourish. I don't know if we know the answer to that, but that is what happened. It allows them to meet without opposition. The only way you and I are going to find strength to be a nobody, to be a living sacrifice, is when you realize that you are the one who is so messed up that Jesus has to be your sacrifice. Right? If you see God the Father as being patient with you, when you continually do things that are wrong, then you will end up, guess what, having more patience with your kids when they do things that are wrong. When you see Jesus as your groom, as your Savior who loves you and bears your shame and scorn and your pain, rather than seeking revenge upon you, you're able to love your spouse and to love others, even your enemies, in the way that Jesus loves When you see Jesus as your friend, even though you were his enemy, then you're able to love even your enemies. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I need to wrap up here. You need to start believing that you have a responsibility, even as a nobody, to tell everybody about somebody that can save anybody. We are to be living sacrifices because it is the way of Jesus. We live like this and people notice. At the end of the letter to the Philippians, we're told as Paul is greeting people at the church in Philippi, he says, greet those of Caesar's household. (laughs) Are you kidding me? It starts with a slave girl, a jailer, an international businesswoman, and has grown to include people of Caesar's household. Yeah. That's what happens. The Ukraine is a terrible situation. We will continue to pray for them. We know people who live there, as Brian explained, and have um, missionaries who are Ukrainians that we support in their efforts to um, create a church planting movement, and they have churches all over Ukraine. Um, The people there have the right to defend themselves against an unjust war, and they should do so. And the Christians there have even a higher duty than that, though they could do that, they also must trust the Lord and keep following Jesus. Whether they're walking the streets or going underground. You may have seen the video of Christians gathering in the subway, singing to God and praying this week. I don't know if you saw that. I put it in the show. Let's see if it works because we didn't test it ahead of time. You should be able to click on it and it'll play. Take a second. 
Життя за людей не дав, книгу життя нам записав. Своєму слові живому, Ім'я життя вже ім'я дав, і дарував. Життя за людей не дав, книгу життя. It repeats, it's on a loop for a little bit. But there they are, seeking safety underground in the subway and ultimate shelter in their God. One of the families from our church who has since moved away and adopted some children from Ukraine the person who helped them with the adoption has been killed in the war so far. And it makes me wonder, can you and I sing in the darkness? Can we sing in the hardest times of life? There's a somebody who loves you and can make you sing. For God so loved the everybodies of the world that he gave the somebody, his son, Jesus, that anybody who believes in him will be saved. For many of you, you know that to be true. If you don't, ask him today. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us, that you will rescue us, that you will remind us that you are the best master that there is who loves, who forgives, who empowers, who strengthens, who picks us up and keeps us going. Lord, would you help us to be nobodies, to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.